TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he always is, is my esteemed co-host, Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, I'm ready for a celebration. I've got the tape right here, the biggest event of the year, the Super Pool. It's time for some water polo. I'm really excited about this, Chris. I've got the uh, pretzels. I've got the beer ready. Uh, and I'm so excited to watch it on a 13 by 13 screen. Same here. But before we start, <laughs> we're going to have to uh, set ourselves aside for 20 seconds. Well, uh, that's because you fouled one of the players, Chris, with your offensive <laughs> language. That is right, and that's exactly what the Enterprise crew did at the start of this episode. Today we're going to talk about Vox Sola, and here's a quick recap. After Archer and his crew completely blow a first contact by eating in public, an unusual alien life form is left behind aboard the Enterprise and sets up home in the cargo bay. When it begins wrapping crew members in its silky white web, Reed and Hoshi begin racing in different directions for a solution, and movie night gets completely spoiled. So, Matthew, you mentioned offensive language, and I, I'll just say the NX-01 crew, they seem to be pretty good at pissing people off with the things they say or the things they do. I mean, who doesn't piss people off? You know, when you take them to a meal in your commissary, and uh, you offer them something that Chef has made... Uh, and then you eat in front of them. I mean, that is so offensive. How how dare you? You eat with your mouth. That's just I, insane, Matthew. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I, but it, I mean, it is an interesting thing. I mean, because, you know, really what this episode does, I think, a great job of is showing how, you know, you have different cultures, you have different races, and the things in which you do trying to figure out what a species would consider taboo when you first meet them is very difficult, obviously, especially when it is something so innocuous to you. Because for for us, the way in which we look to grow closer to somebody is to invite them around the dinner table, right? right. Like That's the way in which we, as a culture and a society, uh, as human beings, like, when you invite somebody to your table, that says something. Mm-hmm. And it says, I want to know you. I, I want to uh, get to know you better. I respect you. You know, it says all of these great things. So, I mean, it. it's I can't really blame the NX-01 because how could you ever conceive of a race thinking that there's a taboo of eating in front of each other because they consider it close to mating? I, You know, yeah. interesting. Okay. Right. Well, I'm imagining what would happen if the Cretacens went aboard a Klingon ship and the Klingons invited them to come have a meal with them. They would have definitely been (laughs) offended by that uh, behavior at the dinner table among Klingons. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea. And actually, it's one of those things that I'm glad that they did in season one of Enterprise, where they're actually showing more so what it's like for humans to be meeting aliens for the first time. Because again, especially in the next generation and beyond, 
the Starfleet officers have a much broader understanding of alien cultures. And first of all, they have some awareness of the majority of the alien races they meet. So they kind of know how they should behave. And, you know, Counselor Troy would prep Picard ahead of time about what you should do when you meet these aliens. And even the aliens who they don't know, they are better prepared to anticipate mm-hmm. things that might go wrong. And and the NX-01 crew, they really don't know. They're just trying to be nice, friendly humans. So they really couldn't anticipate this. Uh, but it's a great thing to show at the beginning of this series to make the deep space exploration more realistic, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, you know, what's what's interesting then about the the episode is is that it i mean it throws the crew in into kind of a a bad mood and 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 it it is it's something that's frustrating because they can't figure and they they legitimately don't know what they did wrong right they won't the the this these aliens won't actually tell them what they did wrong so we don't really know what happened until later on when you know travis uh, is the only one on the bridge and has to communicate with them and kind of one figure out what they did and apologize for it so he can save the day and that's the other thing about this is that you're kind of left anytime you have a moment like this where you have no idea what it is you did to offend somebody you're just kind of left in a funk because you're like oh I don't even know what I could have done better or what I did wrong and mm-hmm. you just kind of feel terrible and so right. you know I, I like that this episode gives us an opportunity to not only explore interspecies relationships like this, but it also gets a a chance to explore the emotional lives of these characters and kind of how they deal with things when things don't go great. Right. And imagine if this alien had not snuck its way onto the ship and they did not need the help of the Kritassians later and they never went back and found them. They still would have no idea what they did to offend these aliens and ruin this first contact. And they would have to live with that. I can imagine them spending days, weeks, months, especially Hoshi, trying to unravel what went wrong. Because Hoshi really is blaming herself because at first it really seems like we just said Mm -hmm. something wrong. The inflection was wrong and we offended them. And that's... That's my role as the communications officer, she would feel. And we already know from her character that things like this will linger with her. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, that's what uh, is kind of cool about the story is that you know, in, in many ways, a lot of the characters get a chance to have a moment and or shine, right? We, we learn a lot about characters in this story. And Hoshi is, is one of the biggest here. And, you know, I, I, I thought... That with Hoshi's story, I think the most important part of this is not really her wallowing and kind of self-pity, but in many ways, there is this kind of girl fight that's been happening between her and T'Pol, and T'Pol isn't even aware of it, right? But uh, Hoshi feels as though she's been very hard on her for no reason at all, and and what we learn is is that her kind of passive-aggressive attitude towards T'Pol wasn't really needed. And what was really needed was just a conversation because T'Pol, of course, being Vulcan, 
tells her outright exactly what it is she's been doing for her and why she's been doing it. And it's not because she has any ill will. It's because she believes she can handle it. And because Hoshi's job is so important, she needs to be pushed to continually be better and better because this situation could have been one where, I mean, what if they took such offense, they started shooting at you, you know? So, I mean, this is, this is a very important. So I was really working with teenagers. I was just very interested in, in, in the way in which kind of adult relationships mirror much of what we have in our young life, which is, we kind of had these petty grievances against people, especially uh, again, of, of same sex relationships that we have because mm-hmm. we have this kind of competition or whatever with them. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting to kind of see this being played out with these two characters. And they overcome it in this episode by overcoming a communication barrier, which this whole episode yeah. is about communication, right? Right, right. The whole episode is there. And that dynamic between Hoshi and Tapal is more than just a rivalry between women and if they were humans, but there's the Vulcan element to it as well. Mm-hmm. That sort of animosity, distrust that we've talked about before that they're all trying to overcome, but it takes some time. And so there's that yes. extra dynamic to it as well. But to pull, you know, to pull believes in Hoshi's abilities and it's to pull's way of trying to encourage her. It's just that it's misread Mm-hmm. On the human side, because of exactly. the way that we tend to interact with one another. Which is a great mirror for what happened mm-hmm. between the aliens and the Enterprise, right? You know, this is yeah. a cross-cultural misunderstanding because they have two different ways of looking at things and dealing with things. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes this, a, uh, I'll go ahead and spill the beans, I think a pretty good episode is because thematically... It is very consistent with itself, and and many of the stories that we're telling with the characters are reinforcing the main theme over and over and over again without necessarily, like, I feel like beating you over the head. Yeah, yeah. Well, reinforcing a theme is a thing that I really like about this episode because, like you just said, it really is all about communication. But they approach communication from different angles within this episode, starting with the obvious there seems to have been a miscommunication between humans and the Kritassans that left the Kritassans offended, and that has created a problem. Then there's a lot of talk about language itself, structure of language, trying to unravel a language, mm-hmm. trying to find a way to translate, interpret two very different languages and get meaning out of that. But then there's the whole thing with this mysterious alien and needing to communicate with it as well. So from beginning to end, even though this episode turns into a sort of House of Horrors type story in the cargo bay, Mm -hmm. it's still about language. It's still about communication. And I like that they set that up at the beginning in one way and they tie into it for the resolution of the story. And the other thing they tie into, which is not language related, but I just like the way they did this. When you see the water polo scene, which we were joking about at the beginning of the episode here, and you feel like, oh, it's just one of those moments in Star Trek where two characters are doing something together, but they come back to it at the end when Archer realizes what's happening to them and Tripp and Archer talk about the water polo and that's how they 
kind of test how their minds are being connected by this alien. And it also gives Archer an opportunity to share that you should never give up in, in something. So it's a, two elements early in the episode, both tied into well at the end. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in many ways, you probably could have called this episode failure to communicate um, because that's, yeah. that's I mean, it wouldn't of, have been as catchy. Yeah, maybe true. if you did it in Latin, it would yeah, work. But there yeah. you go. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. And and I love that you called out the idea of language. It's something that came up when I was talking to uh, Kirsten Beyer and, and Mike Johnson about their latest uh, the and their first audio drama that they've done. And language plays a part in that. And one of the things that we talked about was just how, you know, language is so important to understand because of the nuance, right? Like, and, and language is not as malleable as people want to think it is. It, it has mm-hmm. definitive understandings of what things mean. And those come specifically, too, from the cultures that speak them, right? And mm-hmm. so you can't just have a word mean whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. It actually has a specific meaning for a specific purpose, especially in the context of a specific culture. And this episode really drives that point home, I think, really well. Yeah. It's very difficult to accurately translate from one language to another when you get into any sort of nuance. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. I find it particularly interesting that I watch a lot of television, including shows like Star Trek or Ted Lasso currently, mm-hmm. re-watching a variety of shows with Japanese subtitles on. And because I can read the Japanese subtitles and I'm a native English speaker, I can see how things are being translated. And so often the Japanese translation is a shell of what it means in English. Mm-hmm. Because in any language, you have a way of expressing something that right. can't be accurately replicated. And and there's a lot of, there are layers to what you say. And sometimes it carries a heavier meaning than the words appear to carry. And so when someone translates it so that the viewer, the person listening, whatever, in the other language can understand, they can't convey all of those layers and a lot gets lost. And I remember when last year when Squid Game was really popular and I remember seeing on Twitter and in the news how some people in the US were complaining that the translation wasn't accurate enough to what was being said in Korean. And my thought was, obviously, you you guys don't watch stuff with subtitles. You don't watch foreign language stuff very often because this is a continuous problem of trying to accurately represent what is said in one language into another, especially when you're dealing with television or movie translations. But the point just being that uh, the potential for miscommunication or missing information is so high. And that's one reason that I, I've always appreciated this story so much is that they address this in a way that I think mm-hmm. has rarely ever been done in Star Trek. No, I, I agree with you. And I think it is something that, that really works. 
for uh, the series, um, and it just works for the episode too. And it's it's just an important thing to to be able to discuss, mm-hmm. and it makes so much sense because you know again, and this is something that Kirsten and Mike and I talked about is like. Even the idea of the universal translator, yes, it's great, but it still is going to miss some of the nuance. It is not going to give you every single nuance that can be had by a language. It's just going to do the best approximation. So like you said, yeah, if you say dub something, so so say you're watching the dub version of, of anything, right? It's still not going to give you the full weight of what it would be if you truly understood the other language. And all right. of the context and the nuance and the meaning and all that. So, you know, that's something, again, this just episode, I think, does a great job of. And I think it's something that kind of gets glossed over in Star Trek because of the universal translator. Like, we think that it's just perfect, but it's it would never be perfect. It's one of the things that maybe Kelvin Trek really got right more than any other Trek has, which is that Uhura mm-hmm. actually worked to understand the languages that were being translated because... There is a nuance that you can't get from just the yeah. translation matrix. So I, yeah. I think that's honestly something that, that that part of Star Trek doesn't get enough credit for for doing. So, yeah, this I mean, this episode gives us that. I, I think it's it's really cool that it does um, mm-hmm. and it gives it to us on a bunch of different levels. And and I think mm-hmm. that's something that's great, too, because, you know, again, from to Paul and Hoshi to the. um net alien i guess we could call it to the cretassins as well i mean you know it's it's great who learned english with no problem at all it was very easy to learn yes yes which yeah (laughs) yeah which is funny because uh english is for many people is a very difficult language to learn because of all of the strange rules that it has because it's a conglomeration of so many different languages in the first place so yeah right the exceptions to the rules and and such for sure just a quick, while we're talking about the Universal Translator, one thing I think this episode does, because in the resolution to the problem, we see Hoshi gathering language from, as you called it, the net alien, so that she can then communicate back to it. And we see all these numbers coming onto the the screen of the device, and I think it works well for the story to get across the point of what they're trying to do and the fact sure. that they're making the effort to communicate with this alien. It's super alien to them, but they're finding a way. They're finding a solution, a nonviolent solution, a way to communicate. And then ultimately, they help the alien. They take it back exactly to the spot on its planet where it's supposed to be. So, the UT here serves its purpose for the story in a way that it has to in a 42, 44-minute story. And I like the UT, I think I said this on a recent episode, I like the UT for its role in Star Trek to allow them to tell stories because sure. as much as I love language, it would be really boring if every time we meet an alien, we have to spend half the episode just trying to figure out how to talk to each other. Right. And then the second half is us misunderstanding each other because in reality, you couldn't learn that quickly. But I think Star Trek doesn't portray how the UT would really work very realistically. And this is another case in this episode where the portrayal of it is 
is really kind of out there. Mm-hmm. But at least it supports the point that they're trying to make. So in that sense, it works yeah. well enough for me. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I think I really enjoy about the episode too, and, and, and we talked about this a little bit, but just this the character moment you got with uh, Archer and Trip, I think is really important because it really does show uh, how close these two characters are and it gives you the opportunity to spend some time with them and, and things that they like to do in their off time, you know? Um, and we get to do that actually with a lot of the characters with the idea of you know, them having movie night and those kind of things. And so, but I really appreciate, you know, the whole process with Trip and, and Archer because Trip knows exactly what it is that's going to help his friend feel better and to kind of get his mind off things. And it's, it's one of those things where it's just this beautiful representation of, of what it means to have a friend like that. And I think it's one of the reasons, obviously, too, you know, they're mirroring things in, in Star Trek uh, that we've seen before in the idea of close friendships. But the fact that these two got to be on the same ship uh, is a pretty special thing when you think about it. And, you know, it's obviously very helpful because you're in space doing something that nobody else has ever done before. You need those people that you are close to to be there for you. And I think this is this is a good representation of how important it is for crews to bond. And it it's very interesting because of how different it is from other captains in the sense that, like, by the time you get to Kirk... He's kind of removed from other people in his crew, right? Uh, except for a few. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to Picard. He's completely removed from everybody. And then it's not really until I feel like you get back to Cisco where he's closer to his crew again. And then, of course, Janeway, yeah. very close to her crew because they're in the middle of nowhere by themselves. And, and you know, it, it, I, I just think it's interesting how you kind of almost have that cyclical mm-hmm. nature so that by the time you get to Archer, it's like, no, he's kind of close with everybody. Like he even knew these crewmen's names, you know, and, and like, of course he does. They're on a ship of only like 89 people and he's the captain. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Talking about things the crew do together. I'm just picturing now that they're doing it in real life, it would have been great if Trip and Reed had a podcast together and once a week they get together in their quarters and they record a podcast about exploring strange new worlds. About what's going on on the ship, you know? <laughs> yeah. Man, I heard crewman so-and-so is dating so-and-so, you know? Yeah. And then Reed would say, it's always someone else but me. Uh, yeah. that's, that's true. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about one other element of the story that I think we differ on a bit, and that's the alien itself. You called it the net alien. And the stated mission of Star Trek is to seek out new life and new civilizations. But I feel like we rarely do that in Star Trek. We we rarely see anything that's truly alien. We see lots of humanoids that are pretty much like us, who build societies that are pretty much like ours, live in cities that are pretty much like ours. And of course, that's by design because we're telling stories about human nature and the human condition. But it is nice sometimes to see really, truly alien entities. We've had a few. We've had the crystalline entity. We've had the Horda. We've had Excalbians, you know, some kind of unusual ones. But this is one of the most unusual. And I personally thought it's 
a brilliant way of depicting truly alien life where it's impossible for us to even comprehend what this thing is without really doing a lot of work to figure it out. And the fact that we're also racing the clock here to save our crewmates kind of amplifies that that need to be open-minded to something truly alien. But I guess my question for you is, does the form of this alien pull you out of the story in any way? I think the color of the alien is what pulls me out of uh, okay. the... Uh, it's um if you were going to do this i think it would have been more interesting to have made it less gelatinous maybe uh and mm-hmm. made it kind of more almost like spider webish um yeah and, see and that's I where think, the the color for me helped. yeah the color for me reminds me of spider webs originally but then they do have that kind of gooey gelatinous nature to it, probably because of how it needs to envelop the crew members. Sure. I think uh, that works better than a spider web cocoon mm-hmm. type style. So I feel like it was sort of creatively, the image was somewhere sure. in between those two. But I also was thinking like, and I'm sure they have the color the way they do because it kind of shows up in the darker scenes yeah, that right. they have. But I'm like, if this was just almost like a black, oily type of substance, you know, mm-hmm. instead of white, it would have none of the connotations that I'm sure run through people's minds when they watch this episode. And I think that's just kind of the thing that does. It makes the episode feel strange because it's hard mm-hmm. not to have that in your brain. Uh, otherwise, yeah. though, you know, I, look, the idea that this is a an entity that is basically a space aspen. Because, you know, aspens are all one organism mm-hmm. and because they grow in massive groves that they're all part of this, the same uh, basis. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting, right? It's just uh, the, the look of it because it can't be completely CGI at this point, too. Um, mm-hmm. They they have to use some practical elements that, that don't work as well as it would is this could mm-hmm. be like completely CGI'd where you wouldn't, I think, have the weird like yeah. part of your brain yeah. that's like, oh, that that looks like something that it shouldn't look like. Yeah. The, there is a very interesting behind the scenes piece on the, I think it's on the DVDs as well. It's on the Blu-rays. It's called On the Set and it's with Roxanne Dawson. And they really go through the whole production of this episode and they talk a lot about those practical effects that you're mentioning and how they created the alien. And creatively, I thought it was, it's one of the more interesting episodes of Star Trek in terms of here's the concept we have for the story. Here's what we want to create visually. How do we do it using practical effects and how do we convey the danger uh, the fear, the House of Horrors type atmosphere. And anyone who has the DVDs or Blu-rays, if you haven't watched it, I definitely encourage you to go watch this behind the scenes because you re- you really will, I think, come to appreciate this episode even more when you see what really went into it and you see what Roxanne's thought process was as a director and all for it. 
uh, for me, it's sort of, you know, Roxanne Dawson has become a great director after starting out. And this was earlier on in her directorial process. And I think it shows a lot of that creative potential and growth as a director, what what she was able to do in this episode. But I was also picturing, Matthew, when you said maybe they used the white so it, so it shows up in the dark room. I was picturing them flipping it around and using the oily, black oily textures <laughs> that you're talking about, where it's in the cargo bay, but on the way there, the alien short-circuited the lighting. And so like these bright floodlights are on and they can't turn them off. And therefore, we've got this super, super bright room with this black, oily creature. <laughs> Just flip it around. It's go. like in Photoshop, you know, yep. command yep. I. Yeah, could work. But I, I love the, the just the very alien nature. I, I'm also yeah. glad they did this in season one of Enterprise. Just give us something really weird, really unusual, and see how our heroes will deal with that situation. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, and I think to be able to explore this type of thing because, you know, CGI is, is more available is great because, yeah, it does allow you to explore truly alien things. It's kind of like when Voyager did the swarm, you know, because mm-hmm. things were more available to them in that way. So, uh, you know, I on that front, I have no problems with them trying to push the boundaries and make something interesting and, and completely different. So I, I think on that front, they did a great job. While we're talking about the alien, one other point to talk about here in the story is the ethics of the whole thing. And this, I think, is also portrayed well and carries the message of Star Trek well with giving you different sides. Because you've got Reed, who he says, I have to assume it's hostile if I don't know why it's doing what it's doing. And so he first and foremost wants to save his crewmates and is willing to use force and is willing to harm this creature without first knowing what it is, why it's doing what it is. And and even after there's an indication that it's intelligent. And then you've got Hoshi who wants to communicate with it because of course that's how she views the world is communication. And then you've got to Paul and especially Flox kind of in the middle where they're trying to find a solution. It's intelligent. Flox is a doctor, has an oath not to harm. And he's trying to help Reed, but do it in a sort of controlled environment with the ultimate goal of not harming what may be an intelligent species. What did you think about the whole ethical debate here? I mean, it's, very interesting, especially because this is going to be mirrored in season three when not only the lives of the captain are on the line and others, but all of humankind right. and the choices you make and the rationalizations that you make for things, uh, especially when time is of the essence and you there doesn't seem to be a better option. You know, mm-hmm. and so I, I think it's a great discussion and, and it's absolutely the type of thing that I think Star Trek does a great job of. And so, you know, and I think Flox is right here. They have enough time to be able to do this this way. And yeah, there's a chance that an hour could be too long, but at the same time, there's also a good chance it's not. So, it, you know, and and I th- I think. 
it makes sense for these two characters to kind of be in this position too. I mean, Reed is definitely much more of the mindset that he's just trying to protect the crew. That's his job, right? And so Phlox has different priorities as well because he's a doctor. And when those things clash, you, you come up with this better solution together. Mm -hmm. I, I feel a little bit like Reed has the reaction that humans today would probably have, which is, I have no idea what this thing is, and therefore it's frightening. Of course, he needs to save his crewmates, so I have to get rid of it. And Hoshi's representing more of the core Star Trek ideal of finding a way to bridge differences and communicate and find Mm -hmm. peaceful solutions to things. And ultimately, what I like about the whole ethical debate here is that we are presented different angles, different views. In the end, we get what I think we would consider a Star Trek resolution. We help the alien. We don't harm something that we don't know just because we're frightened of it. But we we do get to have the debate throughout the episode and i'm just picturing this story in the next generation time period for example i can see the entire enterprise crew all working towards the solution that hoshi's trying to achieve and there would not be any option of harming the alien on the table and picard might even be willing to give over the ship Mm-hmm. in order to avoid harming the alien because it's just not an option so it would right. be a one-sided approach to the story and then but here we get a multi-sided approach to the story yeah which i think is in many ways better yeah i think it's, it's better for sure it's just a more realistic uh, take and and it's more realistic because those are the choices you have to make as yeah, exactly. a a captain, right? Like, and, yeah. and so pretending like that there, those options are never on the table, I think is just kind of ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, a couple of quick last points here. We haven't done this in a while. In the first few episodes, at least we were talking about, we had a lot of Star Trek firsts. And there is one in this episode. It's the first time that an Earth ship uses a force field because they don't yet have those. And mm-hmm. Reed actually explains that, I think it was six months, he said, engineers back on Earth had been trying to figure out how to make this work. And he's been playing with it. He can have it stop a phaser beam 60% of the time. And when he was saying that, I was picturing the scene in First Contact with Picard and Lily where they're above the earth and he mm-hmm. taps it. Lily says, oh, there's no glass, you know, and he taps it. And I'm thinking that's how far, you know, technology. Then I'm just thinking about human ingenuity and what we can accomplish if we actually put our minds to doing something positive instead of invading other countries and fighting with each other all the time, you know, we could do that, you know, so... Uh, that part was nice. And then the other thing I just noticed was the Kratessin captain is played by Von Armstrong, who, of course, in Enterprise is best known as 
Admiral Forrest, although this is already, I think, the fourth character he's played in season one of Enterprise. And it's the 12th character that he's played overall. And we all love to say, Jeffrey Combs, he's everywhere. But you rarely hear everyone say, Vaughn Armstrong, he's everywhere. But he really is. It's true. And it's kind of great that, that he is. Um, and I think he's one of those, you know, just versatile actors in yeah. Star Trek where he can kind of play any type of role. And, you know, you know, it's him here, but I, I don't think it ever takes you out of it. And in much the way that sometimes I think where they started to put Jeffrey Combs in too many roles, it was just like, oh, okay. You know, like, because you, your immediate thought was, oh, that's Jeffrey Combs, you know, instead of like, oh, you know, here, yeah. especially. There's enough makeup on and everything that unless you're really paying attention, you're you're probably not first thought, oh, it's Vaughn Armstrong. No, not at all. Yeah, it's not your first thought at all. I think that's a big difference. And the reason why we all think of Jeffrey Combs first as being the actor that plays the most things in Star Trek is that Jeffrey Combs has had a lot of major characters who have had extensive screen time mm -hmm. throughout the series in DS9 and in Enterprise, both with the Wayun characters, of course, as well as Brunt occasionally and so forth, and then Shran here. But Varn Armstrong's characters tend to be one episode. They're aliens, so you don't get that carry through, and that's the reason. But anyway, I, I think it's impressive, yeah, like you say, how versatile he is mm -hmm. and how much he does in this series to bring various characters to life. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap up here. Do you have any final thoughts? And what's your rating for what Star Trek magazine called the fourth best episode of season one? I think this episode, you know, has a lot to offer, uh, mainly because it does a great job of giving us an understanding of what life is like on the ship for a variety of different people, not just our main characters. Uh, it gives almost every, actually, it gives every main character something cool to do, uh, which is very seldom that that happens. And it gives us a great and interesting alien, um, aside from my frustrations with the look. Otherwise, it, it's it's great. And so I'd, I'd have to say it's a good four out of five for me. Uh, you know, I. It's it's definitely a very strong episode, um, and it's well written, uh, and and it's well written in the sense that when you have an episode where almost every single thing revolves around the same theme, and you're just continually kind of driving at that theme from different perspectives, that is a fantastic episode of any television show. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't have a lot of final thoughts beyond what I've already said. I just think it's a great episode of Star Trek. I think it's very clever in its conception and in, in its execution. Again, I really encourage anyone who hasn't watched that behind the scenes documentary to go watch it because it really sheds light on the creation of this episode. And I love that this carries forward the core element of Star Trek, this seeking out new life, trying to understand it, trying not to harm it, bridging differences in cultures, or in this case, existence itself. And it gives us the resolution that I want, which is not to harm the alien, but it doesn't do it in a two-dimensional way 
it actually gives mm-hmm. us an opportunity to think. And yep. so I think that's another reason that it's a great episode. So I'm going to give it nine lone voices. Nice. All right. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts on Voxola. There are many ways for you to share those. You can go to our listeners group on Facebook. That's called the Babel Conference. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, and it should come right on up. If not, just type the whole name. It is a closed group. So if you're not yet a member, you'll see some questions, and also you need to agree to the rules of the forum. So please do answer those questions and agree to the rules so that I can let you in. We'll put a post for this episode there, and you can share your thoughts in that thread and talk to us and fellow listeners. You can also find us on Twitter. Our username there is TrekFM. That's our username throughout social media on Instagram and everywhere. And also you can send Matthew and me email if you'd like. Just go to our website, trek.fm slash contact and choose to send to a show, choose Warp 5, and that'll come to us by email. And we would really love to hear your thoughts. And also, if you're on Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify or however you listen to the show, if you have an option to leave a rating and a review, we would love to get that from you as well. Now, Matthew... When you're not, you know, trying to find your way through the spider webs like Gwen Stefani, where can people find you? Well, uh, you can find me all over the place uh, on social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. Of course, here on the network, you can find me on the Six Hundred Two Club, which is our whole other side of the network, where we don't talk Star Trek. We talk about all of those other fandoms we love. Of course, you can also find me doing literary treks, as I talked about here in this episode, and the Orb. Larry Trex is about the books and the comics of Star Trek, and The Orb uh, is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Chris, you and I uh, talk Deep Space Nine over there, which is super fun, and hopefully people are enjoying the new episodes. You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network. One show I do over there is a finished show called Outpost with Drea Kaufman. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then I also do Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast where John Mills and I dive into all things Star Wars. Now, Chris, when you're not trying to decide what movie you're going to watch for movie night, where can people find you? Well, I'm going to pick something with some great translations. I really want to dig into those subtitles and see how they work out. When I'm not doing that, you can find me here on the network, as you mentioned, doing The Orb with you. It's really great to be back talking Deep Space Nine, our favorite Star Trek series. And we're doing that every other week now. So check out those new episodes. There's also The Ready Room, which I do from time to time with Larry Nemechek, Interphase, and various other things. And of course, I continue to work on some behind-the-scenes things for the network. And then, of course, got my usual job producing magazines and all sorts of other content. And if you'd like to chat with me about Star Trek and Japan or college football or water polo or anything like that, I'd love to hear from you. The best place to catch me is on Twitter. My username is C, Brian Jones, letter C, and Brian with a Y. That's my username everywhere in social media, but Twitter is where I am most active. Now, if you'd like to help us keep Warp 5 and the 602 Club and everything else that we're doing going, we could definitely use your help through Patreon if you'd like to find out how to get involved in the network, how to support what we're doing, help keep us afloat. Please visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. And we really, really appreciate everyone who's supporting us right now. We would not be here without you. So thank you so very, very much. 
Well, Matthew, it was a great discussion today. I hope that you're ready for a little more Vulcan next week because we have a fallen hero coming aboard. Well, Chris, that does sound fascinating. So let's go. 